coming up on Garden Talk. And you want to get more purple, then so the first thing you'll do is F2. You'll take a sister and a brother, you'll put them together, and that'll be your F2. And then F3 on the next sister brother, and that's filial breeding all the way down. Sister brother, sister brother, just straight. But the word stable, when it comes to saying seeds are stable, means that they come out like a monoculture. That 99% of the traits that they display, they almost look like clones. All the progeny, you can get them all down to being all ruderalis after a couple of generations of breeding or a few generations. But to get it down to all them being ruderalis, you'll never get the purple. It'll always be recessive against. So you can take a male and stress it out and run it long enough and it will throw female pistols and flowers and seed itself. And all of your seeds that come from that male will be maleized. What's up, everybody? If you that don't know me, my name is Chris, a.k.a. Mr. Groat, and you're tuned into the Garden Talk podcast. This is episode number 23. In this episode, I interview Vader OG. He is the founder of Ocean Grown Genetics and has been breeding for over 15 years. He grows a variety of plants, such as cucumbers, tomatoes, herbs, orchids, banana trees, fig trees, avocado trees, citrus trees, and so much more. Vader also has a YouTube channel where he has nearly 80,000 subscribers, and he's been uploading videos for the past 10 years, so he's definitely an OG on YouTube. In this episode, we talk about the basics of breeding plants, everything from the nomenclature all the way to how to make different types of seeds. Thank you to all the supporters on Patreon who contribute to this information being made available for free on YouTube and podcast platforms. If you'd like to support, the link is patreon.com slash and there are different tiers on there that unlock various rewards. Another big supporter of free information is our sponsors. Let's give a quick shout out to them. First up is Spider Farmer. Spider Farmer is well known to produce high quality LED grow lights at a price lower than nearly all other companies. They have board style LED grow lights as well as bar style LED grow lights. I've used both their SF2000 and SF4000 LED grow lights in the past, and I got some excellent results with them. They also have grow tents, an inline fan, and a carbon filter. I will leave a link to Spider Farmer down in the description section below, and you can use discount code MrGrowIt5 during checkout for a discount on their products. Dutch Pro Nutrients is also a sponsor of the podcast. They are a plant fertilizer company that has base nutrients, additives, and pH regulators so everything needed for proper plant nutrition. They've been around for over 30 years, and their nutrients are available in several countries across the world. I'll be using their base nutrients that are formulated specifically for RO and soft water. They also have base nutrients formulated specifically for water that has some minerals already in it, such as well water or tap water. I'll leave a link to Dutch Pro's Amazon store down in the description section below, and you can use coupon code MrGrowIt10DP for a discount on their products. All right. Now let's get into the episode. All right, we are back. Welcome to the Garden Talk podcast. Today I am joined with Vader from Ocean Grown. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? How are you doing? Doing good. Super pumped to have you on the podcast today. We're going to be talking about breeding, the basics of breeding plants. And I couldn't think of a better person to have on the podcast for this discussion, really. I mean, you've been around forever. You know, I remember... Watching you in 2014, I think, is when I first started watching you. And uh, you've been around since 2011 is when your first video came out. So Yesterday, I think it was June or July 11th. So I think yesterday was 10 years on YouTube. It was the 10-year anniversary. So this, this is like an anniversary episode. I was going to call that out. Congratulations. 10 years. You have 469 videos currently on your channel, mm-hmm. uh, over 80,000 or about to hit 80,000 subscribers. And uh, all yeah, those videos so combined far. have over 9.2 million views. So that's truly incredible, man. Hats off to you for really doing this for the past 10 years. It's it's just extensive. So great job. It comes quick. It comes quick. I don't even think about the numbers most of the time, like the analytics. I know others, um, even people on the team and stuff, like really nerd out about the analytics. I sort of look past it and don't think about it often. And then you hear the numbers like that. You're like, well, it does sound like a lot. Um, but just really, to me, it's just like you keep trudging, right? It's just it's about the same work as growing or it's the same work. You just keep going. Um, we've had years where like, yeah, really active. And then there's other years where, you know, you take a slow down. You have other things going on in life. Uh, it happens. And but we're still here and um, happy to still be here. I mean, we've even been through little bits, right? We've had channels deleted and YouTube give it back. 
um, and just really with no guidance from YouTube or anyone. So still happy to be here and uh, putting out content when we can. There's been a lot of changes, I think, for everybody over the years, right? You know, even just with life. But we're still making our way. So still still cruising through and still plan on uh, keeping it up for uh, the time being as long as they, they allow us to keep keep performing. For sure. For those that don't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into gardening? Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, the kind of basic little story is that, um, when I was uh graduate of high school, stuff like that, I joined the military, um, for you know, different reasons, a couple of different reasons, but, um, ended up being in the military for a couple of years, got sick and, um, resulted in kind of a lung and bronchial issue for myself, um, was PEB, what you call a physical evaluation board. So they um, wouldn't allow me to stay because I was going to take too long to recover. And they weren't even sure if I would recover all the way. And it's pretty sick. I spent on and off a um, few months in the hospital at a time in full ICU. Uh, very similar to some of the viral issues that you see people going through. At the time, I had um, gotten something uh, very similar in the sense of like that resulted in my body then producing pneumonia symptoms and all of that. So couldn't kick the virus that it was at that time. Got pneumonia over and over again, so it kept relapsing with it, and it damaged and scarred my lungs and my bronchioles. So I got bronchiectasis and uh, lung scarring from it, and was pretty down about it. And military was like, you're not going to be coming back right now. Like, you're done. And I had gotten all the way down to, like, 140 pounds at one point, and that was going from, like, 240 pounds of, you know, having some muscle on. So that, like in a six-month period, just way down. And then couldn't get weight back up. So when I got out of the military, it was about 180 pounds. Um, and I'm 6'8", so, you know, my average good weight is 205 to 220 at least, just to be doing pretty good. Kind of slipped below that and I'm a little too thin. So I still had some work to get going. And uh, they retired me, and I didn't know what to do. I was on a bunch of steroids um, in 2001, and um, just really feeling down. I had been an athlete my whole life and wasn't, wasn't sure what the next step was. Right. Um, there were things like, uh, you know, medicinal herb, uh, that, you know, pretty popular in the culture around Cali and everything like that, uh, derivatives of hemp. And in that fashion, it was offered to me during the time, um, to think about it, but, I had always been an athlete and so I'd always avoided it. Friends and people participated, um, you know, at a party here and there, I had had a beer, you know, a few hops and uh, passed around some of that medicinal, but it never really affected me much. I was like, oh, wasn't a big deal. So I never used it, never really thought about it. And I had seen some friends that, of course, like you get into that kind of culture, some people ab- can abuse things really easily. And so that was always in my mindset. But got out of the military on a bunch of steroids. Um, doctors didn't know what to do. And a friend of mine joked about it, a little Peter Tosh, um, Bob Marley, right? You know, ha ha ha, cures uh, asthma. And I was like, oh, well, I'll give it a shot. And so friend brought some over and um, tried it and uh, couldn't believe how incredibly just immediately better I felt. Um, Even for my lungs, things like that, even though I had scarring, you know, you would think that it would be like a no-no, especially to consume a product um, by like, you know, inhaling and burning it. But ended up uh, changing my life around about the viewpoint of it. And so at that time period, it was really important, especially for me, to make sure that I had clean um, product, uh, because a lot of people, especially in unregulated markets can use, right. You know, you're fighting a lot of weird pest issues, things like that. And so people will use products that are outside of agriculture because there's no regulation. So it was really important to me at the beginning, um, to be able to produce my own product. And I learned that very quickly. So, um, the one thing about that time period was that it was harder to get your medical and everything in Cali at the time in 96, they had opened it up, but 2001, 2002, still really difficult. Had to go to like one specific specialty doctor. You had to go through a bunch of stuff, bring all your records, multiple interviews, ended up getting a card and ended up being able to also produce in Cali law. You could produce for yourself as well. So, um, along with that, I started producing for myself pretty lightly for a couple of years. And, uh, then it just kind of grew from that point on. But, um, and I ended up falling in love with this, not only the plant itself, but plants in general, agriculture, and all kinds of um, medicinal plants that do come along with these concepts. Once you break your mind free of like a stigma of something you've been told, then it makes you realize like, well, hey, if we were told this about this stuff, then what other things out there are, are there misconceptions for? And so that started me on a path 
definitely um, more based in agriculture a large part of my life. Gotcha. And then you had mentioned before we started uh, filming is that you've been breeding for over 15 years now. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So the first few years, for sure, it was just for myself. Um, I would just produce product or flowers and things like that um, to be able to uh, make different products and try different avenues too. you know, thinking about it because um, there are different ways to consume the products or make different products for it and um, found, you know, what worked for me, what I liked. And then um, slowly, though, more friends, because you're doing a good job of producing product, um, clean product, then more people uh, would like some of it. And so I just ended up sort of growing that more and more. And because I did have the permits and everything available, or right, I started with my card and then kind of worked my way through the system to see like, hey, in my county, in my area, what can we do? Can you bring that up more production? Had some friends thought about it. I had really gotten into the online community. So um, people that know like back from the overgrow days, that's where I initially started doing seed trading. So I started because I saw that going on. I thought, well, you know, if you're a farmer, like not only are you going to grow something, but you also want to breed it. You also want to try participating in those future generations. Um, a lot with like the medicinal plant that we use, you can propagate these plants through cloning. And so that's super popular. And it was super popular in our community and um, in Cali and in that industry, as we'd quote unquote call it. But I still like, you know, you had to, to even get different kinds of phenotypes, different kinds of unique clones. You could have things that people had found, but you could also make your own. And so that's what started me on the journey. And I started small by just using what they call feminized breeding, where you take a plant and you hermaphrodite it and then you'll use pollen against another um, particular strain style and then you'll get something unique out of those progeny um, or offspring so that was my original um, sort of tiptoe in from maybe 2002 to 2006 taking things breeding them finding clones and then releasing those clones into the market and slowly running a sort of clone market business as well and it wasn't really for like producing seeds that didn't come until later um, by being able to share seeds with other people, maybe with friends and of course, seed trading online. That's where we were all doing it. And there was nothing wrong with it. It was still it's just hemp seed, right? Still a derivative of the same species stuff. So there um, being no cannabinoids, things like that, um, that had regulation towards them, um, especially for like us in the U.S., then that was our way that we could get around that without having like live plants or um, live product and things. Even though in our areas it was regulated and, and legal, at least on a state or a county levels. Okay. So let's get into, let's start with some of the basic terminology, you know, starting with what exactly is breeding? So when it comes to breeding, there's, um, you're, you're basically making offspring, right? In nature, we've got that um, with animals and with plants. Um, with animals, um, it can be a little bit different, obviously a little bit more complicated. Um, with plants, uh, it's going to be, I generally call it a little simpler. Um, you could argue theoretically a few different um, vantage and viewpoints for it, depending especially the species. But overall, um, it's pretty much simpler in the sense that for plants, you have monoecious and dioecious or dioecious, dioecious. I kind of get the, some people say it's tomato, tomato sometimes. Um, but these are the difference between um, plants that have either the both sex organs on themselves. So technically they can self-pollinate themselves, although they generally will pollinate at different times. So you take like maize, corn, um, that is, it tries to have its male parts and pollen come at a different time than its female parts on its particular plant. So another corn or maize will be flowering its female parts at a time at which one near it will be flowering male parts. So it tries not to pollinate itself so much and then um, send it off to other things, although technically can pollinate. But they have both organs. And then dioecious, right, you're going to have um, two different male and female plants. Now, some people get that confused with, like, hemp because hemp can show those traits. Um, but actually, uh, genetically, there's, it's a little bit of a difference. It would be considered a dioecious plant. So it has both males and females, which was something really interesting for me to learn at the time because when I first learned about it, I actually thought all plants, and especially flowers and things of those species that are, are near there, um, like on the taxonomy when it comes to botany, were they all were 
males and or um, male female parts would be on one plant. So it was interesting to me, and that was kind of like the joke at the beginning. It's like, oh, it's an alien plant because you know there's true like males and true females. Until I learned more about agriculture and botany, and then it turned out like, oh no, you do find this around uh, quite a lot. So it's just you get two separations. For that, for us, then we have two different sets. We're going for females and males, and that's the baseline of breeding, which we call true breeding, or many people refer to as regular, um, in our particular industry or community um, with our plants. And then getting into, I think it's appropriate to talk about genotype and phenotype. Now, this is something that I had briefly talked about in a recent uh, past podcast with Northwest Jay. We talked about pheno hunting. Uh, we described what it is there. But I think it's appropriate to talk about it here as well in this episode. Can, can you break down genotype and phenotype for us? Phenos are going to be what your progeny persists on. So you'll have different phenotypic expressions per traits. The genotype itself is the larger... Um, genomics of a plant. So, um, and phenotypes are kind of, we throw it around a lot, I think, in like, oh, this is the phenotype of the plant. But what you're really talking about when you get a progeny, and it's it's a phenotype of it, meaning it's showing a phenotypical trait. So let's say uh, color purple, right? You know, even though something like color purple comes from really stress, and it comes from mutations for that. Um, but let's say you're just going for color and you want something. So you get a progeny that has something, um, offspring that has purple in it. You would call it a purple phenotype, but it's really just displaying that particular trait. It's not the whole thing itself. It's actually only just the miniature traits versus the genotype, which is the whole thing in general for that species, if that makes sense. Yep, that makes sense. And so kind of taking a step back just to kind of make things basic for the beginners for introduction, Male plants uh, are going to produce the pollen sacs and they're going to release the pollen sacs will open and release pollen. Females grow pistils and receive the pollen through that, ultimately forming a seed within the plant's buds. Now, there are different generations, uh, you know, F1, F2, F3, etc., etc. What is an F1? So, um, yeah, that nomenclature is when you take two different kids and you or two different things in a species and put it together so it can still breed right like it's still the same uh, technical species i mean it gets kind of it gets a little different because you talk about like things like animals are easy to talk show like lions and tigers are obviously different but they're close enough that they can breed together and then they're at the same time kind of far enough away from each other that when you breed them together you get weird things going on right everything from sterility to gigantism and all kinds of uh, funky stuff so they've gotten away pretty far away but they're not super close where if you're talking about a species like for us where we're using our plants um, we're so close that we can move into different the same downward spiral is is really within the same thing so like humans like we're all so similar that you can just mix us like our idea that hair is a certain way or skin or different things um, they're really similar. They're small little changes. To us, they look like they might be um, a wide variety of stuff, but really genetically, we are so similar that um, these traits are just well within the same species. So that's where like F1s and things, I'm um, talking about just hybridization because all, pl- all of our plants are hybridized itself. And so you can take one that's purple and one that's green and put them together. Um, and then th- that'll be your F1 on that. And then your F2s, your F3s, traits down these are filial breeding um, generally what you're going to do is an offspring and progeny you'll take like you'll have two parents and then if you f1s are going to be two separate parents right from two different zones maybe they're on two different sides of the valley okay they've been developing far enough away from each other but they're like two different tribes north side and south side so that is the f1 north and south side together then their progeny their offspring if you take a brother and a sister and you breed them together because north side and south side had two different traits, um, you know, purple and green. Then, and you want to get more purple, then, so the first thing you'll do is F2. You'll take a sister and a brother, you'll put them together, and that'll be your F2. And then F3 on the next sister brother, and that's filial breeding all the way down. Sister brother, sister brother, just straight. Eventually, you can back yourself in the corners. Um, generally, with like hemp and stuff, it's pretty well known. You get to like F16. Somewhere F12 to F16, and generally you'll get to sterility. And probably some funky genetic traits, weird growth patterns, all kinds of stuff uh, in between there. So you can only go so far without F1ing again. 
meaning taking something out of that lineup and resetting it back to something a little bit different. So that's where you get those back crosses would be back crossing to if we move into that, right, which is really popular. And that's where it's much quicker to get to a trait. So you can easily back cross by meaning you did an F1 and then you got something purple. And the North original parent lineage was also purple. So you take a purple child and you back cross that to the purple parent. And then you'll take a purple grandkid and change that back to the original parent again. So then you get down to like BX4 where you're like four generations down, but you still keep going back up to your original parent, which was your, your zero or your P, P1s. So that's where you get into like back crossing. And then you get into self crossing, which is because with like hemp, for example, even though it has males and females, it has, we have been able to breed it and it was showing it in nature and naturally where it will throw both male and female parts. Unfortunately, the or this happens with both plant styles, even monoecious or dioecious, that when you self, the pollen from itself adds in extra chromosomes. So that's where you get like X uh, or Y, XX, things like that. So then when you get your future progeny, they're not what we call true breed, where they'll just have XY and XX. Which is why it can get a little confusing when people go to test for sex with the sex testing, because the sex tests um, check for Y. So you could say like, oh, this is a Y, it's a male. But it might actually be a YXX, right, or XXY. So you're catching the Y, thinking it's male. But really, it's going to, if you grew it out, it would look female. If you didn't give it any stress, it wouldn't show any of its, uh, like, hermaphroditic traits. It wouldn't, it wouldn't show its selfing traits. So that's just something to think about that chromosomes and those things aren't all equal in the way um, that becomes like very advanced, right? Concepts and, and things get a little, so without digressing into um, weird theoretical or other concepts, just keeping it simple, um, getting into selfing S1, S2 can be really viable in a lot of situations and help hybridize. So it's another technique that you can use in speed against filial crossing, which always takes much longer to pull the traits out, especially when two things are vastly different. So if you take something like a plant that was from the equatorial zone, you know, in Colombia, and then you want to go breed that against something that was natural in nature, um, very close in the species, but it was over in Northern Europe, then it's going to be far more hybridized, right? Your progeny are going to be way more varied, where if you take something from equatorial Colombia, and then you take something that was over in Peru, and you put those together, they're going to be much closer. You're still going to call them an F1 when you breed them together. But it, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to be so similar because maybe they had had some crossing back and forth between the days earlier. Um, they can be much more stable in a sense as far as like a monoculture crop. Um, but you'll still call them F1s and F2s. So it's something to think about when people hear like, oh, this is an F1. I want to stay away from those. Or this is an F2. Well, something that's so hybridized nowadays, especially in our industry and community, most of the time we've hybridized everything so much that when we F1 things, there's still so many traits that are similar that they're going to work well together and you, you may not see as much variety. And then you just have to get to know your breeds. But that's why, you know, 30, in 70s, 80s, there was a lot more varied production but over the years of course we're all just interacting with each other and get passing around plants and genetics that we've really come to a place where we've gotten away from a lot of those extreme you don't find those as much anymore because the production has moved itself all around the world gotcha and for the record i am not a breeder <laughs> i just want to make that clear uh, i did create a cross i did uh brisker og cross with pakistan valley then you are a breeder <laughs> I'm learning so much from this conversation here, uh, you know, the, the short 20 minutes that we've already been recording. I've learned so much. So I don't consider myself a breeder at all. Or if you consider okay. me a breeder, I'm a breeder with barely any experience. <laughs> yeah, experience levels, but same with myself. And I'm sure that somewhere in here, somebody who has, um, you know, a particular level of education will catch me on saying things that, uh, right, like, you know, you're always going to do that. Even myself, like, I'm pretty well up with it. I can handle it with the best. Um, I have friends who are PhD, right? Like they, 
straight up. I, I can hang with them and know a lot of concepts, but at the same time, I don't always get the terms and everything right. And I think that's important to note, and even for someone like you as you're getting into it, don't get hung up on it. If, if you kind of messed up on a term or something or even a concept, as long as you have the baseline of it, like that's a great beginning. Like, you just keep working on it. You learn from new people. But even I myself um, learn all the time. So, uh, But you're on that path, and it is well to call yourself if you've started breeding then you're a breeder like that's to me that's the the same place you're participating in something that most people don't participate when it comes to plants and uh, farming just in general that's a really good point for sure okay let's hop into the selection process so uh you know oftentimes breeders they're going to select certain males or females we'll start with males they look at certain characteristics in the plant uh, things that they're looking for that they want to breed within that cultivar. So talking about the male selection process, what are some characteristics that you look for when you're selecting males? Yeah, when it comes to these kinds of things, I've always aired, so it kind of depends on, on where, whether you know your, your particular strains or not, right? Um, if you're in one species of a plant. Once you know your strains uh, more, you can make a variety of decisions based on that, but always starting really simply like just in a basic level you want to get into it my i always lean into recommending that you go for health go for the health of the males and you don't worry about um trying to get into the nitty-gritty of figuring out what traits they're going to pass on um you're going to be able to tell that especially like in our field um with the females it's the more prized possession it's what people are going for so you concentrate more on what the females are displaying and not what the males are displaying because what you're going to get into is dominant and recessive traits so you could pick uh, a male for example that is showing purple but when you breed it with a female that has purple green um, and then all the progeny just turn out green that is because there is a dominant trait right that is going to grasp on and be it comes in ones and twos or zeros and ones and that dominant trait is going to overtake the recessive trait it's just the way it works so you'll run into that all the time with breeding so that is why i say at the beginning you worry about health of the plants things like that strength um, and stay away from worrying about the traits themselves as much when it comes to the males the females are much easier to identify the traits and then when you breed with them, you'll be able to then try keep picking those females that display those traits. And then, you, of course, you can start doing with the males themselves, colors, um, you know, for hemp and things like that when it comes to, like, trichomes and stuff um, and production. Then that will lend itself over. And it will. If you start picking purple males that are real sticky, right, and you want stickier flowers on your females, it's going to lend itself over, and you're going to find more dominant traits for it. But I always say get to know your plants first before worrying about the specific traits because of those dominant and recessive genes are going to be more powerful. And you're going to find the visualization of being able to choose that and understanding your plants under females much quicker and easier. Males are a little harder to kind of wrap your brain around. You don't see them a lot. You don't deal with them a lot. And um, they will display different traits depending on what strain line they come down. And I know that from experience that certain strain lines, I'm not worried about if a male's tall. It's, it's always a recessive trait with the particular females I'm running. So I'm always, I don't care if he gets super lanky. It doesn't really bother me that much. I mean, I don't want it extremely lanky, but it does. I will pick a linkier male that is purple over... Um, a male that like, oh, I don't want it getting too lanky, so I'll, I'll get it a little bit more green because I just don't want to keep the height down. So you have to figure that out. That's kind of that artistry experience that comes in uh, play, and that's the hard part about time. Then time comes into play in the experience. So shooting for males that are healthy, strong, that's the best way to go at first because that will always bring up the health and vigor of all of your strains and all the progeny from that point on, even with females, because we hybridize stuff so much and so many people in the industry end up getting seeds from stressed out situations. Um, things didn't go just perfect. Um, maybe you're bringing against clones that have been around a long time and they have slowly had epigenetic drift, as we call it. So epigenetic wise, they've been exposed to different environments and different stressors and that has changed their genetics so just like the twin even with humans you take two twins and one of them grows up well super healthy and the other one is malnourished growing up you're going to get different 
you're going to get that particular exact clone in a sense, right? That identical twin to um, one be displaying different traits even later on in their life. They could have displayed either trait, right? Of being a little hunched back or being standing up straight, for example, but due to those stressors. So when it comes to clones, a lot of times and even seed batches as people are doing, we sort of end up defaulting down into things not being as healthy. And um, one of the easiest ways to bring up the health of stuff is just to pick for healthier plants in the beginning. Okay, that makes sense. So if that kind of makes sense in that realm, I just say start, start, start soft, start simple. Gotcha. Now, when I first grew out a male, I was really surprised by not only how fast those pollen stacks grew, but how fast they opened up. You know, so I think mm-hmm. it was like around day twenty or something, a pollen sacks were open up and pollen was going everywhere. Um, around what day of flower do you feel it's best to? kind of harvest pollen or collect pollen from males in order to kind of maximize the amount of pollen you're, you're getting. Cause some people are there, you know, let me back up a second. So there's some people that are actually collecting the pollen, storing it and using it mm-hmm. later. And then there's some people who are just putting a male in with a female and shaking it. So as far as like people who are collecting it, what day of flower is best do you think to kind of harvest that pollen? In my experience, there's no difference between pollen that's just being released and pollen that's um, on a male that's been opening pollen up for a couple of weeks. The viability and strength of that pollen, the genetics that they're passing on, is exactly the same. They're just doing it at different rates. You know, they're they're growing up. They're the first stamens are coming out. They're starting to drop pollen for the males. Um, the wind. I mean, you know, with like hemp for example like you know you don't even need a pollinator like bees or anything like that right you just you know the wind will just take care of it um so if you're in a chamber or something um that'll just all on its own um get off in an environment and the females will grab it if you're collecting um then you don't have to worry about it you can just do it right at the beginning get enough pollen and you can nuke that male and you don't have to keep it around you don't have to waste time on it or anything like that so if you're just doing pollen collection then um, yeah, collect as much as you need right at the beginning, and then you can move on. It will not change the strength or any of the traits um, by letting the males go longer. They're just going to keep producing pollen to get more females because plants grow at different rates, especially in nature. So the plants know they're like, hey, you know, they drop males drop pollen from, you know, they op- start opening up every two or three weeks, right? You know, usually by week three, males are totally blooming. And then they're going to bloom until week five or six. And then they're just, they'll almost die off themselves. Like after they've spent, males are just like, and then they're down. You won't even see them last, which is why we usually say, even if you're doing chambers or something, you can cut off your males after week five or week six and not even worry about it. And then once the males are cut out of the situation, then the females will put a lot more production and okay, I'm not getting any more male pollen. Like now I'm really going to put that production into the seeds and the embryos. Okay. And then as far as like collecting the collecting process, I've, I've done it a couple of different ways. I mean, I put a bag over the actual branch and shook it. So the pollen gets collected in a bag, um, you know, cutting it off, you know, bashing it down onto like tin foil and then scraping it up is another way. Um, using one of those like trim trays, you know, that has a screen on it, bashing it down there. So all the pollen comes down below. I found that to be kind of the best way. What techniques do you use to collect pollen? Yeah, so your biggest thing for collecting pollen, because pollen is going to go inert really quickly if it dries up. Um, And that's one thing to note also with males, just as like a side tangent, which is like if you have a male um, and it dries up or the pollen dries up, it's going to go inert within like 72 hours. If it dries, it'll be dead. It won't matter. You can see the little yellow pollen around, you know, on the edges, but if it's dried up and gone, it's gone. And uh, it it won't be pollinating anything else anymore. So you want to throw that into a cool environment, right? Um, I'm guessing you, you either did fridge or freeze, um, the pollen. Yeah, I put it in the fridge and that was, that was another question I was going to ask you is the best way to store okay. pollen. Yeah. So, um, cooling it down and keeping the moisture level, that's basically what's going on with the fridge and cooling it. And then you'll, you'll get six months or so out of it. Um, often, um, getting into longer period freezing, then you need to freeze it. And then, um, normal fridges work. Okay. Uh, you know, you're lucky to get a year, year and a half out of that pollen, um, you'll need to get into like minus 80 environments um, to be able to store pollen for longer periods of time. And then, of course, with any time you freeze it, because we all know this, water expands um, just like a human being or, you know, you put ice, you put water in a glass inside your freezer, the ice expands, breaks the glass. Same things happen with cells. So when you go to dethaw stuff, um, if it wasn't frozen quickly enough, it can actually like the expansion 
will will happen. And when you go to dethaw, it will create more problems with moisture and damage the pollen itself. So it's the dethaw process that ends up being hard, which is why, yeah, if you want to be able to kind of move into a, a similar round, like on the next round, you know you're going to use that pollen on the next round, but you just want to save it for a couple months, then just throwing it in the fridge is generally a better idea. One of the things you want to do for oxidization uh, or oxidization and everything is that you want to get the air out, as much air, and getting out enough um, particles. So like you're saying, um, putting it over a screen and just getting the pollen itself and keeping out a lot of the larger um, cell structure, the stamens and you know leaf matter and things like that, is going to help in that storage process without inviting any other, because there's molds and fungi and everything like that floating around, bacteria floating around, and those bacteria and everything and, and fungi will eat away and start um, in the dethaw process or even inside the fridge, right? So you want to cool it down enough where you don't promote that kind of um, warmer situation where you'll get like fungi and things to grow and keep it nice and clean. So screening it, um, getting it into a container of some kind and then getting the air out, which is why I'm more of a fan of, yeah, whether you get it onto a plate or you know, tinfoil like you were saying or whatever different techniques are and you kind of shake some and you scoop it up a little spoon, get it into, you can put it into vials, things like that, but it's harder to get the oxygen out where with like a little baggie, you can, if you store them in bags, you can even just kind of press the air out, right? And just get most of the air out. And then that will help with long-term storage. So getting the air out and then keeping the natural moisture level it was at cooled down, then you're going to create a good environment for that pollen to stay moist enough where it's viable, but um, doesn't degrade and doesn't also get eaten away at some kind of pest. Good info. Really good info there. Let's move on to the female selection process. So we talked about males. Now let's talk about females. So you said it was a little bit different of a process when you're selecting females. How do you select females? What's your process? Um, the nice thing about females is that you kind of like, and I still lend myself away. And again, different people can have different techniques. I encourage people to have different techniques um, for what they do. So just because I do something a certain way um, doesn't mean it's the right way to go about it or do it. Because I am, have such a heavy background in creating clones, um, trying to find specific traits that ex are expressed and finding unique things, then I will hunt or what we call pheno hunting, pheno hunt out females and then use those as my base line. Now, whether I get into filial breeding or I just use back crossing quite a bit um, and that work lends itself really well for like our particular like medicinal style hemp or hemp breeding and stuff that, uh, yeah, for females, I generally go to hunt for, you know, what I would want to run as a monocrop. I find something that would be great to run just as propagation for clones. So you clone a bunch and then you run all whole tray or a whole room just in that one crop. So I'll find things that I, to me, are something I would love to yeah grow in larger production, and then we'll take that as our baseline, and then use that either for filial crossing, um, F1 style crossing and hybridization, or we'll use it for back crossing into future generations to try and stabilize those traits into being when you grow the seeds out. Hopeful or eventually, if you get it right, you can get those seeds to basically what they call stable. Not to be confused with, I know the terminology a lot, people are like, oh, they're stable, like as if they're stable against hermaphroditic traits, which is true. It can be stable against hermaphroditic traits, but the word stable when it comes to saying seeds are stable means that they come out like a monoculture, that 99% of the traits that they display, that the girls are displaying, they almost look like clones. That would be stability or true stability. So we're getting closer to stability and a lot quicker with back crossing. So start with some baseline thing, um, and then you just you're back crossing to those. You'll end up getting down as long as you don't run into some weird odd mutation, um, and everything's pretty healthy. Then you can get those seeds by BX4, BX5. Um, th there's some nuances in there and some things that we do see depending on what back cross generation it is, and depends on the uh, particular strain line. But usually by BX6 or so you should have a pretty stable run of just seeds. And then, so now you have seeds in the same way you could produce just those clones by propagating. But the nice thing about seeds, unlike clones, is that seeds can stay viable for years without, with, with just some decent storage and still get perfect propagation. So um, then it just kind of depends on, you know, what way in agriculture do you want to hold moms, clones, or seeds, things like that. Okay. 
And when it comes to the actual pollination process, right? Uh, I feel like if you're if you're trying to pollinate a female too early, you could mess things up. If it's too late, you could kind of mess things up as far as like your overall yield on seeds or however you want to say it. Around what day of flower would you suggest? You know, what do you think is like the best day to to pollinate? So I'm a big believer in nature and for how many seeds the plants produce for the average person going into this, you are going to get so many seeds that you should never really worry about trying to do what we call seed production runs where you'll purposely grow the females out till like week three before even setting a male into flowering. So that way, by the time the male opens up and starts producing pollen at his week three, the females are, say, at week six. And we all know that a six-week-old female is going to have a lot more flower sites, a lot more pistils, a lot more calyx sites to be able to absorb pollen, and you're going to be able to get more seed out of it. To me, it one, it depends on the strain, and two, it's kind of negligible. I mean, there are so many seeds that... It's, it's not really that much more production to me. I think that would be something I would talk to um, when it comes to production for facilities, when facilities are trying to do it. So if I were counseling that, then we could start getting into the nuance with particular strains. But even when you're first breeding and you just want to keep things natural, again, back to the healthy and strong thing. If you put males in with the females, they know that. They are sending out signals to each other, Right. Um, they're picking that up and the females will grow just with a male in the vicinity. You will see them grow slightly differently because they know that there's a male there and they are bumping themselves up, getting ready for it. Um, the other way is that they will, they want to get seeded. And so they'll start putting out and you, we can smell it in terpenes, right? The females will start putting a lot of production into like trying to basically be sexy, and um, that, to me, lends itself more to, like, they want to get uh, seeds in and you can get a lot of production. But I find healthier, better phenotypes from females that, like, had a male and they were ready to go right at the same time period. Because in nature, the males are going to grow in a field <laughs> uh, with the females randomly or in the same environment under the same lighting system, lighting times, or photo period times, excuse me. So they're going to get the same basic signals from those environmental conditions to start up their production on whether or not they're going to be getting seed or not getting seed. So I think it stresses out the females a little bit more uh, when you hold that back from them. And it's fine when we're just using the female flower product and that's what we're getting it for. We're using it for a specific thing. We've bred them to have these big fat flowers, for example, right? Or same with cucumbers and stuff. We we've bred them to get real big and not have any seeds, bananas, um, examples, etc. So, you kind of have to look past like what we've done for breeding and what not and what's really stressing the plant out. And overall that is a stress. So getting the males in early when you're just trying to find the best things is always my recommendation is what I go for is just let the males get in there naturally because the females are still going to produce more than enough seed. Even when you're doing production on a personal level, um, I find that to be the best way. And then also logistically, it just makes it much easier. <laughs> so everything kind of lines itself up to just like get the males in with the females and let them have a party. That makes sense. I was going to ask you about yield. Now, generally speaking, I mean, you can you can veg a plant out and fill up like a four by four space and then pollinate that plant. And you're going to get a lot more seeds than you would a smaller plant, right? So kind of generally speaking, uh, you know, do you have a recommended size plant to pollinate and like roughly how many seeds can potentially be yielded from that size? Yeah, of course, again, strains or as you're kind of like pointing, like strains are going to dependent. I mean, how big they are, uh, different ones do it. It's just like female, just when you're even going for flower production for that kind of thing with like total sensimia, no seeds, right? Um, you're going, different strains are going to lend themselves to different training techniques. Obviously, with breeding, you start getting a male into, say, something like a chamber, then you're not going to be able to train them out as well. You're going to get to a point where if they're locked in a chamber, you can't get in there and, like, strip down certain fan leaves and still try and promote certain kinds of growth. It's going to be a little bit more difficult challenge unless you're doing the pollen collection, going to do bagging of certain branches. Um, but even then, if you're doing that kind of technique, well, you're not going for tons of seed. You're just trying to get enough uh, seed variety out that you can go and experiment and find some different phenotypes. Okay. Gotcha. Let's get into feminized seeds. So becoming more and more popular, right? You have regular seeds, which can be, they can end up being a male plant or a female plant. You have feminized seeds, mm -hmm. which are supposed to be always female. That's what happened, but they're supposed to be. So how would feminized... They're, they're supposed to be displaying 
just their female traits. So um, that that's what they're attempting to do is get them there. Now, hemp itself has a natural mutation somewhere along the line. We don't know exactly where. Like we have been going in and out of production for hemp for thousands of years. And there are things that like in the 60s and 70s when all the hippies went out and found all the crazy stuff that was still out and around or near farms in you know, Vietnam or somewhere. Um, and some of them were wild. Well, they weren't really wild. If we look back in the genetics of these plants, we can tell that they had gone through some kind of selection process and humans were involved in moving them towards different kinds of traits in those areas. So it is a crop that we have had our hands in for a long time even when it has gone back to wild. Um, this, so the, they do display these traits of what we call hermaphrodite right, traits, where they will, um, just like uh, plants that ha just have male and female parts, they'll kind of do the same thing. Um, so we can basically leverage that trait, this hermaphroditic trait, to, and this is where we get into even those females, though, um, will still have chromosomes that are displaying both. Um, XXY, so both an X and a Y chromosomes. Um, the, this is why if you give them a little bit of a stress, they're much more likely to show those traits. But even the males and females that you get in true breeding still have this stress trait in their genetics. And most likely from the nature, we can imagine, you get to the fall time, a female's there, self-preservation, there were no males to pollinate it. At the end, it'll It'll pollinate itself. Frost is coming. It'll throw out some male um, male sacs. Pollen will come. It'll pollinate itself. And at least it'll keep that thing going into the next year, the next season after the frost or whatever it is, wherever that environment is. So that's where we can theoretically like imagine that that's where that trait comes from. And so we're trying to leverage that trait by then producing... Um, plants that will only show female flowers, a trait for only displaying female flowers, with, and we don't have to worry about that. So that's where we get into the feminized breeding. That's why it works that way. And it works great if you're super healthy and you're super good about your selection, then you can absolutely feminize, as we call it, like this branding term, into seeds. Unfortunately, a lot of people in a lot of breeders and places just don't take the time to one, make the proper selection to get down to make sure that like they're stress tested, everything like that. And it takes a lot of time. It's one of the reasons I stay away from it. I've done a lot of that for pheno hunting to go find strains out of clones and to make clones because you can find a clone out of feminized seeds, right? That has all the traits you want, doesn't show the hermaphroditic traits, is really strong and so that's easy to pick so i don't have to go that far down in fem breeding to find good clones and then be able to then maybe add some males back in there rehybridize out the genetics kind of get it reset but still grab those traits that are dominant mostly for those particular strains in other places though if you give them the stress people may see like oh in their environment they smashed you know two females together and one of them they hermaphrodited for feminized seeds made fem seeds in their um, environment, it seemed fine. They didn't get any hermaphrodite traits, but then tons of people are reporting back that they share those seeds with that they're having issues. And so that's where you run into this issue over and over again, where sometimes people love fem seeds. They never have any problems. It's all great. Good breeding was done. Great selection was done. And then in other places, um, it wasn't maybe even good selection was done, but in their environment. So you have to really expose them to a lot of different environments to be able to figure out whether or not those traits will be expressed. Where for myself, yeah, I stick to a lot of true breeding because even if those are in strains that we use, those kinds of traits, they definitely aren't displayed as much and they seem to be healthier and be able to get through a lot more stressful situations by having the variety in that genetics. Especially with the way, excuse me, the way that we've hybridized the entire species itself so much. That's really interesting. So you touched on how feminized seeds are created. Uh, autoflowers, another popular uh, type of seed or, or plant. How are those seeds created? So autoflowers come from part of the species, the taxonomy for that, right, is that that is a ruderalis. So it is related to hemp or is hemp, but it has started going off in a different path, like a lion and a tiger. Um, we, so they're farther away from each other 
versus like if you go and look at lions or um, even killer whales, like for example, there's two different kinds of killer whales. There's like the northern hemisphere ones that hang out and then there's the lower hemisphere ones. And to us by eye, you might not notice a difference, but actually if you study them, they've sort of started to bridge away from each other. And one is smaller than the other. One have a little bit different social interactions, etc. Um, but they're not totally different with something they can't breed so same with lions right like lions can be that way too you think like all lions are the same but actually there's some different depending on the zones and where they are like um in say africa for example where lions are in different place environments they've gone away from each other but you take those lions back together and you'll they're still lions versus a tiger which is all the way out so i look at like ruderalis as like a tiger you sort of you get into breeding that with um, what we've made selection for for so long on our production that we've had a lot of hand in. You're going back to something that has a slightly different genetic makeup. Now, autoflowers are in zones, and they were pulled in a place where they will flower automatically regardless of your photo period. So photo period doesn't affect them. That's the trait that comes along with them. So what... The advantage of that, of course, is that if you pop a seed, it will vegetate itself up no matter the light. You could give it 24 hours of light. It'll do that for three, four weeks, and then it'll just start flowering. And you can leave it on 24 hours of light, and it'll keep flowering. So that is a great trait for somebody to be able to just you know throw a plant um, in their backyard or on a porch or something, and it makes a lot of sense. You don't have to worry about photo periods. The issue with this is that it's really hard to get Again, we're back to dominant and recessive traits to be able to pull in the traits. So if the progeny or the offspring, you breed with it with a, a ruderalis male, um, for example, this is just, you know, it could be a female or male, but we'll just say a ruderalis male and you take it against your favorite at home medicinal um, strain. Some of those progeny are going to come out ruderalis or autoflower and some of the progeny won't. It will depend on what's dominant or recessive. Now, um, some of the traits with a particular strain, maybe a bunch of them come out ruderalis and a bunch of them don't come a ruderalis. And that's where you have to do the breeding to get it in. In my experience with ruderalis, because of the genetics and the way it's been worked, it's really tough to get like flavor profiles, color, et cetera, structure, because, um, that you want, that you love out of your photo period plant into an autoflower plant. Um, because the dominant traits for autoflower may always go against it being purple, for example. So sure, all the progeny, you can get them all down to being all ruderalis after a couple of generations of breeding or a few generations. But to get it down to all them being ruderalis, you'll never get the purple. It'll always be recessive against. And that's just one example of something that you could and will run into when breeding with that. Versus... If you do feminized seeds, right, and you self something or self it against another, or at least put female, male hermaphrodite pollen onto a female, all those seeds are going to be that way. So it's much easier to get to. You won't see that with feminized seeds, right? Well, it's not like with feminized seeds, some of them turn out to be male and some of them turn out to be female. No, no, they're all going to majority-wise show that female trait. But... um when it comes to ruderalis, you're talking about something completely different. So then you really have to worry about the recessive and dominant genes to get that. And that's where you get that battle where some people are like, oh, I ordered ruderalis seeds. And like some, a couple of them were, but most of them weren't even that. And they wouldn't, they're not photo, they're just regular photo period plants. And that's because the work wasn't done to make sure that you got those traits along with it and to stabilize it. So back to stabilizing a particular strain, which is going to be much more important when doing autoflowering and autoflower breeding to stabilize everything, especially for that particular trait, because that's the trait you're looking for. Gotcha. Yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, you know, there's more and more people reaching out to me saying that they, they got autos, but they're not actually autos. And I, I honestly feel bad. It seems to be the same breeders. Uh, first, number one, I won't expose anybody in, in this video, but, uh, is, you know, a lot of these home growers, they just have one space to grow in. And if you've got a plant that's not actually an auto and you need to flip it to 12-12, what do you do? Like, there's a lot of people that are just, they're stuck at that point. So, um, yeah, you touched on how that can actually happen. So it's just, you know, they're not stabilizing and so on and so forth. It's just, uh, it's sad to see some of that stuff. People, it kind of seems like things are rushed in a sense just to get it out onto the market, you know. So And, you know, that 
and that's the age-old problem. Even before Ruderalis, um, Autoflower had become really popular over the last years, um, 10, 15 years, and it's really taken off. That's the same problem, right, we get with feminized seeds where people get complaints like, oh, well, I'm, everything's hermaphroditing at week six. I can't even make it past week six. And then suddenly it's showing its trait that normally would show at week 12 or something in, in like a normal true female. Um, it would still throw that hermaphroditic trait show to try and self-pollinate itself under stress. But instead, it's overtaken. And now you can't even get past week six with those progeny without it um, flipping over. And then also kind of a fun note about plants, just so some people just to kind of get in your idea in your head when it comes to true breed, you can also do this to males. So you can take a male and stress it out and run it long enough and it will throw female pistols and flowers and seed itself. And all of your seeds that come from that male will be maleized. They will majority show the male trait and come out as males, but then they'll be throwing female pistols and things. So if you see that in your males and everything, then you know like, okay, this somewhere along the line, this has kind of ended up happening. And it happens with tons of strains I've run across because I too, standing on the shoulders of giants, am working with gear, right? Like even if it was a long time ago, at some point I started with gear that I have no idea what the history is of it. I'm, I'm told of certain things. I can try and look it up from the names and from where it comes from in that time period. But you never quite know where along the past something happened. But that's kind of a fun, weird thing about like feminized breeding is that it also goes the other way, too. Super interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, that that's really interesting. Cool. Well, we can go on and on and on and on, but we're going we're gonna to wrap things up here. Can you uh, tell us how the listeners can find you and what you've got upcoming in the future? Oh, yeah. Um, we, uh, we're in California. Um, we run, I have run a company called Ocean Grown uh, for quite some time. The best way to find us is we either run on our Discord or you can just go to our website. Um, it's a purely educational site. No issues with that. Um, you can find information um, about where to find different kinds of products or what the available producers are. And then I also have a YouTube channel that I've been running, as we mentioned. Um, it's just Vader OG, or you can type in Vader Vision. Um, it's kind of like the show that I run through that uh, production. So over on YouTube, you can find me there and uh, some resource uh, videos available. And then if you want to talk to us, though, or even get a hold of me a little bit more, you have questions about things in the community. Our Discord has been, um, I used to be big on forums. So I loved forums, and that's where you used to be able to find me, but I've gone away from that with the newer technology um, into a much more uh, simpler platform that allows a lot more access. So even if you can't just talk to me, you can talk to people in the team that are going to be able to help you out. So over at our Discord, Ocean Grown Discord. And then also you've got a podcast that you're a part of now, huh? You want to talk a little bit about that, Growers Workshop? Oh, we've started running a podcast, yes, for Growers Workshop. We used to get the community together. Um, we used to have a show, GrowTube, a lot of people uh, know. And that was great to be able to get a lot of people in our particular community together. Um, that is still there to a degree, although we've kind of stepped away from it. Um, we had some issues with YouTube and banning channels and deleting things. So this time around, very similarly, we have created a podcast where we can talk about these subjects but keep them um, available for information that YouTube is not going to remove it. So we try to start this podcast where we can still talk a little bit more openly, but with the right nomenclature, the right language to um, express the information out there. So Growers Workshop is uh, the podcast we've been running. And then there is some idea and plans for um, also that's where we've been putting like build out stuff, chambers, things. So for people who want to like be able to do breeding. And you want to be able to have a chamber area that is going to be good enough not to let pollen out and pollinate, you know, some females and stuff uh, right nearby. And this can work for orchids and all kinds of stuff. But these, um, that is a great place also to find that kind of information. And it's less, it's more grow wide. And same with, um, I do do like permaculture. Uh, we do do hydroponics outdoors for veggies, for all kinds of other things. So that kind of stuff is also a resource for those looking to do that kind of stuff. Uh, but it's slowly building. It's new. So if you go over there and it doesn't seem like there's too much information, we're we're new venture that we're working through. Cool. I will link Vader's channel down in the description section below and also the Growers Workshop. I'll link that channel down in the description section below. If you enjoyed this video, please click that thumbs up button. The thumbs up button helps so much. It helps us reach more people. 
Uh, also, subscribing. If you uh, are new to the channel, hit that subscribe button on YouTube. Every single week, every Saturday, I release a new episode. Unless Susan decides she needs to manually review it, <laughs> then she uh, then it usually comes out on Sunday. But typically, every weekend, we have a new episode out. Apple Podcasts, if you're listening on there, please leave a rating and review. We have 79 so far, so we're getting real close to 100. Thank you to everyone who has left a rating or review on Apple Podcasts so far. And lastly, sharing this. So uh, sharing this is probably one of the best things that you can do. Reddit is a big area you can share it. Facebook groups. There are a lot of Facebook groups that you can share it on. Uh, thank you to everyone who shares this podcast. So, Vader, thank you so much for coming on to this podcast. It's truly been an honor. I'm so thankful for you to come on here. And so thanks to Dago. He's the one who kind of connected us to make this happen. Got to give him a shout out. So, Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. And, um, and of course, and for anyone listening, like at, drop questions on whatever platform you're watching it on. I'm sure I will rotate back through. I can get into more detail. I can even be prepared with some research if somebody brings up something theoretical or just something that they want to know about. Um, there's, it's really tough in these kinds of podcasts to like, yeah, keep it within an hour or 45 minutes. Um, because I can tangent really quick into other kinds of concepts. So keeping that kind of baseline. So hopefully we knocked out the, the beginner stuff, but, um, absolutely get down in there and, uh, ask away and I can, I will definitely rotate back through. I had a wonderful time. Absolutely. Well, Vader, thanks again. And, uh, hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Absolutely. You too. I'll see you soon. Peace.